Hello everyone, this is Shweb Khan here at Anti Small Talk, and today we have another all killer, no filler conversation with the wonderful Adrian Rollins. Hello, Adrian, and welcome to Teacher Hog Radio in our collaboration with Anti Small Talk. Thank you. So, Adrian, okay, for our audience, who is Adrian Rollins? Well, um, yeah, I've got quite a quite an interesting background. Uh, firstly, I was I was born. I'm from East London, uh, kind of born and raised, uh, primarily a single parent family. My, my family background, in terms of my family, come from Barbados. Uh, both my both my parents come from Barbados, and my, so therefore my entire family come from Barbados. My grandparents were part of the Windrush uh, generation, so came to to Britain in the late fifties and left their children back home who then came later on. Uh, my mother met my father in England and uh, I'm the eldest of, of three boys. Uh, grew up in East London, uh, kind of challenging, challenging part of East London as East London generally is. Uh, went to a secondary school there, primary, secondary. And, uh, you know, that, that was, that, that had its challenges as well. Um, as you, as you'd expect, 1970s uh, England uh, wasn't necessarily welcome of, of of people who look like me, but um, you know, we we got through those challenges. Finished school at eighteen, having done GCSEs and A levels. And to my mind, I think I might have been the first black male to complete A levels at that school. Um, my mum was chair of governors at the time, and, and that's what she told me. Um, my mum, uh, absolutely wonderful woman, raised me and my two younger brothers, and she went into education when I was around 15, 16, having done various work, fostering, um, helped set up the Sickle Cell Society um, and, and lots of other things that she did on a voluntary basis. And within five, six years of, well, within six, seven years of becoming a, a, a teacher, which is primary in, um, in East London, she became the first uh, black um, head teacher in Newham, which is where I'm from. And then she then became the first after doing that for six, seven years, became the first head teacher in the London Borough of Enfield, the first black head teacher in the London Borough of Enfield. So um, even though I'm a teacher now, my background was my, my brothers and I, my family were always into cricket. So had uncles who played cricket. I grew up um, with cricket around me and at a time when the West Indies cricket team in the 80s, 70s and 80s were dominating world cricket. So even though um, I kind of grew up in a fatherless household, I had 11 fathers who were playing, you know, who were beating up the world at cricket and then also, you know, regularly seeing them playing county cricket. So, you know, Viv Richards was my father, Michael Holding was my father, Gordon Grellis was my father, as well as having uncles who, who raised me. So I grew up playing with the passion of being cricket. Um, I played a lot of local club cricket um, down in East London, Essex, and grew up playing Essex schoolboy cricket, as did both of my younger brothers. And that... 20, I signed a professional cricket contract for Derbyshire County Cricket Club. Uh, but by that time, two years prior to that, my then 16-year-old brother signed a professional contract with Essex. So my younger brother, Robert Rollins, he played Essex schoolboys as I did, but he made he played county cricket from the age of 16 as a wicketkeeper. And I, I started playing at uh, 20 in terms of men's county cricket. So I, I played county cricket for 10 years. Eight seasons at Derbyshire primarily, and then three seasons at Northamptonshire. Um, my younger brother played about nine years 
So I, I'd pay 230, first, not first class, 230 first team matches. And um, in my cricket career, I've been fortunate in terms of I hold a couple of records for Derbyshire, the longest ever innings in the club's history, um, over nine hours, and then also the youngest English qualified player to score a double century. So that, you know, the cricket and sport was very much part of the family. I retired at 30 because I got injured. So I got injured and um, announced my retirement just before my 31st birthday and went into education. So initially I worked in Luton as a school sports coordinator as part of the active schools program. And that was a, a fantastic job. Um, did that for two years. And my line manager, Tony and the team, I mean, they were brilliant, very supportive because I did that as an unqualified teacher because when I retired, I had plenty of diplomas and and A-levels and what have you, but I didn't have my degree. So I, I did my degree, which was a maths-based degree through the Open University, but up to the point of completing the degree, the degree I worked unqualified um, as, a, as a teacher in Luton and Northampton. And also I returned back to London and I taught in North and East London for a good few years before I, I entered, the actually did a fully qualified teacher, my QTS as a maths teacher, uh, which was, you know, well, 13, 14 years ago. And since that point, um, I have I was in London for a good few years with various TLR roles and then moved to Derby in 2012. And I've uh, been, you know, a, a director of maths and then assistant head. And I'm currently about to enter my fourth year as a deputy head teacher. So I'm deputy head teacher at a secondary school in Nottingham. I absolutely love education. I'm very passionate uh, about it. I'm very passionate about the schools I tend to work in tend to reflect my childhood experience. So they are in communities which which need um, people in the community to understand that, you know, those teachers at the school understand where they're coming from. But at the same time, I know they can excel and I know they have the capability to excel where previously someone may not have believed in them in the same way. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Wow, what an introduction. I've had some incredible guests. I've interviewed some incredible people. But your life story is absolutely incredible, Adrian. That is incredible. Where do we start? Where do we start? So, Adrian, um, you mentioned your mum and how much of a role model she is to you. Um, what was life like growing up? Because I can imagine there are some similarities between myself and yourself. So what was it like growing up? Yeah, I mean, there were similarities. You know, this was East London. It was tough and a lot of um, a lot of distractions, putting it mildly, that were there. So we needed, you know, our mum had to be tough to keep us focused on what we needed to do, what was necessary, as opposed to those distractions. I mean, one thing, you know, I was fortunate because my mum's brothers in particular, my grandparents were, were very supportive. Literally every weekend we went to grandparents and mum would pick us up. My uncle was very active playing local cricket and he was also active in the community doing youth work. So in terms of my mum, she, she, she did what to me, she did what she had to do. She had to keep us focused. She had to keep us on a straight and narrow because it was very easy for to, to, be, to fall for the temptations that are out there on the street. You know, one thing, my family went to sport, so they encouraged me and my brothers and I to, to also you know, participate. And my mum actively encouraged us to participate. You know, just having a, a circle of people who were 
not who are focused on just being active as opposed to being active in other ways in the community. So my mum was very much silent. And she was very clear what she expected of us. I mean, she started, she trained to be a teacher when I was 10, 11 years old or started to. So it wasn't as if, um, it wasn't as if she was a teacher when we were children, but she was still very much, um, her expectations were very, very clear. And, you know, she didn't have to be overly harsh, but um, the look was often, <laughs> the look was often good enough to keep us in check. That um, is something that I've, I, I practice every day still. I haven't got it to grandmaster level like my mum, but, you know, I'm not far off. Anybody listening right now will tell you about the look. The look is something that's very, very prominent, uh, and I'm almost certain everyone's aware of it. I remember growing up, Adrian, and uh, there was my grandfather used to sit at the very base of the stairs. And if you came l- late from the curfew, 30 seconds, five minutes, whatever it was, or you'd open the door very, very gently because our stairwell used to creak. So you'd open the door very, very gently and you'd see his two eyes and you had like 30 seconds, maybe even less than that, to make your move and get out of there as quickly as possible. No, the look is really, really important. And it's been a massive part of my teaching career, actually. I think that disapproving look, it's more its more um, effective than anything someone can say verbally. Absolutely. So, Adrian, okay, discipline at home is really important, okay? Discipline at home and turning away from the streets, the seductions of street life, which are available for me as well. So, Adrian, how do you think discipline played a role in your sporting career following the discipline you had at home? I think it's just the key thing is just in terms of, I think that the, the discipline encouraged self-discipline because the whole point of discipline was not to chastise us for doing wrong because, you know, young people do wrong and it's not, you know, that's just how it goes. I mean, I've got my own children. I'm, I remember when my children were very young because my youngest is 17, my oldest is 21 now. But I remember my mum saying, as soon as you realise your children are there to wind you up, you just get on with it. So, um and it's so much you you can't you don't accept it, but you know there's going to be challenges in in being a parent. So, and and when you I think often as a as a young person when you become a parent that's when you understand it a bit more. So, uh, and not that I didn't understand it before, but I did fully understand it when I became a parent. So, and even more so, and it makes me look back even more so to respect the hard work and endeavour that my that my mother did and went through to in order to, you know, to to keep us focused and. To, for us to actually, as, as free men now, to, you know, that we live lives which are, you know, are, are, are positive. You know, my, you know, my mum, I'm, I'm very respectful of my mum. I mean, she, she's got, she went on to get an OBE um, three, four years ago now in, in first services to education after being ahead for 20 plus years. So, you know, you have to respect that and to be the first that looks like you in two local authorities you know, that takes a lot of courage, you know, and so I, I look at that and think, well, you know, that's that's why she set the example. So, you know, when it comes to self-discipline, she set the example. So there's, and with that in mind, you know, for, for a family that started off in a high-rise flat in Canning Town in East London, there's no, you know, there are no barriers. It's fascinating to hear how your mum helped remove those barriers. And those barriers, you know, which many of us still face this very day, but we see people who look like us, from our own community, achieving incredible things. Like, your mother's got an OB, that's incredible. It's an incredible, incredible feat, but it gives you that sense of aspiration, doesn't it? And that idea of what success actually is. So, Adrian, okay, one thing I picked up when we first had a conversation, our audience don't know, we had a conversation before this. You batted for nine hours. I'm not a huge cricketing fan. I can imagine there's cricketing fans listening to this right now. 
nine hours. First of all, how did you do it? And how did you feel after it? Well, I'm still tired now, but um, no, the, um, the, I mean, it was done over a day and a bit as well, because first class cricket, you know, the day starts at 11, 11 o'clock and finished at 6.30. But even in that time, you have lunch, you have tea, which takes up an hour out of the day. So you have that kind of overnight. It was day one and part of day two of a four-day match. And I, I think um, I think the tiredness is actually more mental than anything else. It's the ability to concentrate for a long time. And physically, it's tiring, but mentally, the, the, to concentrate. And I think that comes from, I think when I... You know, twice I think I might have batted over nine hours, but um, in terms of the club record and what have you. But I am, um, when I think about it, it was just, you know, it's, again, it just goes back to home, you know, having that discipline. And, and um, you know, my, my uncles in that respect, when it came to, I remember playing local club cricket in kind of East London Essex in a, in a less Essex league. And I remember being a young 13 well 14 15 16 year old where i broke into playing local first team club cricket and i remember one game even now i got out for naught and and the captain who i opened a batting with and the person who batted number three both got hundreds and um you know that was a lesson learned so you kind of learn that from uh <laughs> when you've missed the boat so to speak that you learn that when you get your opportunity to to score runs or to opportunity where you're actually feeling good because it's like everything like the times when you're feeling good and not so good but when you're feeling good you have to capitalize on those situations so when i um when i got my first 200 for derbyshire which is which is the lo- the record for the longest innings um it was i literally got my maiden first class 100 two a week and a half before two weeks before and so my confidence was high so the key thing for me was just to keep going with that and I didn't know it was the longest innings. I just batted and batted and batted. I absolutely love how you had no idea and still got the record. Absolutely incredible, Adrian. This is Adrian Rollins, Shrab Khan, Anti-Small Talk, Teach Hug Radio. Quick ad break to hear from some of our sponsors. Hello and welcome back to Anti-Small Talk, Teacher Hug Radio, Schweb Khan, Adrian Rollins. Adrian, so we finished off hearing about your wonderful batting spree, nine incredible hours. Once these nine hours ended, what happened next? What was the next step? What did you do straight afterwards? I carried my bat, so I opened the bat in and then everybody got out. So I walked off at the end of the, the innings with my bat and... Yeah, that was it. Was it was special? It's something you remember because it's nothing I possibly envisaged when I started playing cricket. I, I was given a one-year contract for Derbyshire. I thought, oh, I can tell my kids when they're old. I played one year of professional cricket with a contract. Those kind of things you don't see. You just they kind of come to you, but they come to you through on the back of hard work and and um, yeah, I, you know, it was great. It was great. Honestly, what an outstanding feat and what an incredible, incredible thing to do. And for our cricket fans out there, that is still a record, I believe. That is still a record. Incredible. So, Adrian, okay, myself and yourself, before we started this conversation, we talked about how, you know, life 
how it mirrors sport, how sport mirrors life. Would you like to shed some light on that for us, please? Playing, playing sport for a living is um, something that, you know, there are highs and lows. Sport kind of mirrors life. So you have highs and lows. And the thing is, when you're a professional sports person, those highs and lows are in, in the public space. You know, if I get if I get naught for my local club side, yeah, it might be in the local paper on a Tuesday evening. And if I get naught the next week, it might well, it won't be in there because the person who got 30 plus or 40 plus or 50 plus, the key scorers might be in there. But when you're a county cricketer, it's in the Telegraph with the list of scores for the county matches that day. And those things can even impact your family where, you know, when I did well, people would go and see my mum when she was at work or her colleagues would say, oh, we got 100 or we got... And then other times, it's, oh, oh, we got naught or we got one. So everything's very public. And um, I think that's the thing about being a professional sports person that is so public. And then that makes it... I remember at, at stages during my career, that was very difficult to deal with because it was, um, you felt that pressure, but other times um, you didn't because you got to a point in your career where you just realised, you know what, this is just, one, it's just a game, two, I'm not going to do any better if I'm just anxious all the time. So the key thing about being sport and performing is about your ability to relax and concentrate at the same time. So, yeah, it was a, yeah, absolute, absolute great way to, learn a living and see the world and find out about yourself because that's you find out about yourself when you're facing adversity so and there's nothing kind of more adverse than firstly being at a low point in your sports career and people questioning your ability to still be a professional sports person in a roundabout way and then secondly it's actually when your career is over and that's the other thing because my career ended for injury and uh, for many a sports person particularly cricket that can be a mental challenge as well. Um, might, people may not be aware, but cricket has the, the highest post-suicide rate for ex-professional cricket. Out of all the professional sports, cricket has the highest post-career suicide rate because the very nature of professional or county cricket, and we're not talking international, because international cricketers do earn a, a very, very good living, particularly nowadays with all the franchise cricket. But even back then was your county cricket, you earned, you earned a normal wage. So when you retired, you had to go to work and um, not everyone necessarily was bothered about you being a sports person. Often I, the amount of business cards I picked up in my career said, when you retire, yeah, yeah, come, 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 come work for me. And then you call those people, send your CV and the, and the door being shut. Because what happens is if you've been playing for 10 years or more, you've, you've spent 10 years or more away from, an industry which has had served someone else for 10 years. So you're essentially you're playing catch up. Some people might see the fact there are key transferable skills for a sports person, but not everybody sees that. And there's a very few select sports people who actually then stay in the game in terms of they become a coach, they become a commentator. You know, what people might not, might not realize, or back when I played, there was more than 400 contracted county cricketers. There's only 11 first team coaches, well, 18 first team coaches, 18 second team coaches, you know, um, you know, okay, now there's umpiring, there's, there's very few spots that are available. So therefore you have to try and forge your way into another, another career. And some, there's guys I used to play with who are no longer here, who mentally couldn't cope with that change. I think as many of our listeners will also, we never knew about that statistic. 
and it's something you don't really pay attention to. I've been reading quite a lot about Azim Rafiq and all the stuff that's going on in Yorkshire Cricket Club with all the racism and everything, but I never knew that. And it's uh, there's a reason why we have these conversations. We can hold these conversations with people and, and get to know them and understand a bit more about the intellectual worlds they come from. So, Adrian, okay, I've just pulled up your record. You took one wicket. In your illustrious career, you took one wicket. How did that happen? How only one? I know you're a batsman. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but one wicket? Yeah, uh, the wicket I'll come on to, but I'm on, on record as being apparently the tallest ever wicket keeper because I occasionally wicket kept and I'm six foot five. So, um, but it was occasionally my younger brother was wicket keeper for Essex on a regular basis. My one wicket, oh, you didn't, you shouldn't have gone there. My one, no, 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 it's not, no. People are tired of hearing it. Those who know are tired of hearing it. My one wicket is one of England's best ever cricketers. So um, it was Graham Gooch. I got Graham Gooch out in 1995. So Derbyshire versus Essex at Essex. And obviously me growing up playing Essex schools cricket. I was actually playing against my brother. It was the first time I played against my brother who was playing for Essex, 95. And I got Graham Gooch out. Um, anyone thought when I got him out that I got the winner, you know, the winning guy in the World Cup final because uh, I, I ran and I ran around the pitch and I pointed to the pavilion, told my brother to get his pads on that he would be next. Um, and then I had this mentality of a fast bowler when I was nothing more than at best a medium pace bowler. And uh, and then Mark War came in, the, the you know, one of the War twins from Australia came in and proceeded to um, put me back in my put me back in my place. But yeah, Graham Goose is my one wicket, so um, which I'm quite that's not a bad one wicket to have. <laughs> Graham Gooch is actually not a bad scalp at all. That's a really, really good scalp. And you played with Mark War as well. Wow, that's incredible. Anyone listening to this, Mark and Steve War, two Australian cricket twins. One was a captain, incredible cricketers. And Adrian had the privilege of sharing a field with them, or they had the privilege of sharing the field with Adrian. Um, I love also the rivalry with your brother. Sibling rivalries, they never end. It's just one of those things. So, Adrian, okay. I remember growing up and my granddad was huge, was a huge Imran Khan fan, Wasim Akram, um, Wakar Yunus. I remember he used to talk to us about the West Indies cricket team, obviously just before my era, the 80s, the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s. You know, the that incredible team, Sir Viv Richards, Malcolm Marshall, Sir Garfield Sobers. I could go on and on. I could go, Michael Holding, I could go on and on. I could go on and on. Um, you're from Barbados. Did that West Indies team have an impact on you as a young man growing up, playing cricket and seeing these incredible cricketers change cricket forever? I mean, as I said earlier regarding the West Indies team, you know, because I grew up with a father, but and with the like with the, some of the experience I, I I experienced growing up, which sometimes I didn't even realise it was racism. So I remember being at school when there were people in my class who were drawing like the NF sign, National Front sign on their books. And I didn't know what, that at that time, at that particular time, obviously I learned what the National Front stood for because I saw it on walls, I saw it everywhere. Or the swastika or things that I didn't realize what that, what that meant. So, you know, I was, and I was regularly subjected to racist abuse at, at school and, and in various means. So the, the West Indies cricket team, you know, when they came over in the 70s and the 80s and toured England, I mean, 1984, they, they beat England 5-0 and it was the, the kind of infamous Blackwash um, series where they won 5-0. And for me, 
you know, the pride watching like Desmond Haynes, Gordon Greenwich, Viv Richards, Richie Richardson, Larry Gomes, you know, all of them, you know, then the bowling, Marshall, Garner, Walsh, Colin Crow, all of them. They 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 made me they get they made me feel I had an identity as a as a black male, which I didn't think society necessarily had that in you know, planned for me. You know, a lot of the, the T V programmes that were on at the time, kind of mind your language, I remember that comedy which was very disrespectful to many very people from various parts of the world um love thy neighbor there was just so many things that were derogatory but it's almost acceptable racism at the time on tv in terms of comedies and in terms of you know the mockery so you know i needed that kind of affirmation in 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 other ways so those guys kind of brought that they gave that to me and so when people ask me what's kind of one of your proudest moments as a cricketer, there was a few, but none of them necessarily relate to getting my highest score or anything like that. So one was I was 12th man when Derbyshire played Glamorgan and, and, and Viv Richards was playing for Glamorgan. This was 90, 92, 93. And he came out to bat and just watching him swagger and come out to bat and watching bat while I was 12th man. I, re, I you know, I, I stayed on the field. I, I didn't want to come off the field. I wanted to watch you know, the King Bat. And um, that was, that still, of all the things, that still is kind of one of my highs of my entire career. And I didn't play, I was 12th man, so I was fielding. And another one was just, you know, to face Malcolm Marshall, or to face, like, face Waka, Wasim, all those guys. It was just, it was just an incredible feeling to think I was watching these guys on TV and now I'm playing against them. But in terms of having an identity as a black male, those guys, Michael Holt, they were so proud of who they were and what they stood for and their heritage that it, it made me proud because I, I didn't necessarily feel with some of the language that was pointed towards. And I say some because I think it was unfair to say that, uh, that, you know, the whole of East London is racist, far from it. Or that even, you know, you know, even the majority, I wouldn't say that either. I would say there was a, there was a select minority of people who could not would not let go of what they felt was the the identity of, you know, people coming over and taking our jobs and all that kind of rubbish and holding on to that identity of what is English and not, not letting go of that. So I think with that in mind, um, that's where I, those guys gave me pr- pride. And I, when I met Viv in the, like, after, after the game and talked to him, I, I would tell him and I, I told Curtly Amber, I told them all, you know what it what it meant for me, and then also thinking back, the guys who played for England, because um, that was you know there was there was a select you know Roland Butcher was the first ever black person to play for England, but then you know I had the courtesy see and the, and the pleasure of playing with Philip De Freitas, with Devon Malcolm, um, you know, and and just playing against it was it it meant something because their strength and I know what they endured and what they went through on the cricket field because I had my experience as well, but to, to know that they stood tall and they they kept going was, was something. And sometimes that experience was even h- harder for the, the people of Caribbean heritage who played for England, because when they went to play against the West Indies, they were kind of, you know, talked to like they were traitors, you know, your Chris Lewis's or, you know, uh, uh, Gladstone Small, you know, you play against these guys and I have nothing but respect for them because of what, you know, they, they were just... To me, they were they were my role models without that we te- without them realizing, because I just needed that identity. And similarly for, for for cricket as well. I mean for football, 
Um, I'm from East London. I mean, Clyde Best, West Ham. I mean, what he went through was incredible. So, you know, I remember seeing him in the 70s and that was like, wow, this guy, this guy is, this guy is incredible. You know, and I, you know, some of the stuff he took, you know, that he faced. And I, one of my football childhood heroes was Johnny Barnes. And obviously there's that famous picture of him kicking, um, you know, doing the, the, where the banana's thrown at him and he kind of flicks it. You know, it's, it's you know, powerful, powerful stuff. And um, things that actually give me, you know, they, they gave me strength as a, as a young man trying to work out my identity and particularly as a young man trying to work out my identity with, without, as much as my uncles and that, without my, without a father. So yeah, it was, uh, it was very, um, very powerful. No, that must've been so powerful. The opportunity to see one of your role models, physically see them. That must've been so, so powerful. We've just got another ad break coming up for you. Uh, this is teacher hug radio, Schweb Khan, Adrian Rollins, anti small talk. We'll be back. Welcome back, everyone. We've got Shweb Khan here with Adrian Rollins having a conversation about all things cricket, mental health, racism, all the big conversations. So, Adrian, between our ad break, my brother actually text messaged me, massive cricket fan. He's asked me, can I ask you about the Benson and Hedges Cup? I better get that right. And also about someone called Jack Russell. Do you know of this person? Yeah. Well, I've played against Jack lots of times in county cricket. An absolutely wonderful guy. Um, I mean, he is a wonderful guy. A bit eccentric, but absolutely wonderful. A great competitor. <laughs> I really liked him. Um, but I liked, I got on well with a Gloucestershire County Cricket Club guy. It's a wonderful, wonderful bunch of players. I mean, I never played in the Benson's Heads Cup final. I put 93 Derbyshire did. And I was um, on the squad. I was in the squad, you know, in terms of I was on the books. But uh, like a one a family member, Frankie Griffith actually bowled the the, the final over, which stopped Lancashire from winning, um, which is you know a very proud moment. I'm, st- I'm still proud of him now for it, and it goes down as you know stuff of folklore really and legend. Um, I am, um, yeah, Jack was a, a good guy. I played. I was fortunate to play in one final in 1998 for uh, Derbyshire against Lancashire at Old Trafford. Um, a funny final because it was in September and back then, you know, if you lost a toss, you lost the game. We lost a toss. It rained for a majority of the day at Lords. We ended up batting late in the late, late afternoon. The game carried over to day two. We had a day two in terms of to complete the game. There was always a spare day and we lost. But that, you know, there's, there's no way in my wildest dreams I ever thought that I would play in a kind of Lords final. And if you put kind of Adrian Rollins, I don't know, Freddie Flintoff or Andrew Flintoff, it was Freddie who actually caught me out of slip in the final off Peter Martin, um, diving catch. And I maintain that if it were not for that, I might have had an international career. <laughs> well, not, not really, but that's my excuse. <laughs> 
No, no, they say that everything happens for a reason, don't they? And maybe not having an international career open up the avenue for you to enter the classroom, which we're going to talk about in a second as well. So, Adrian, okay, you had a wonderful cricketing career, which ended abruptly through injury. After your injury, and after all the incredible things you've achieved, you decide to make the transition into the classroom. I know you've spoken about your mum and how she was very much focused on education, discipline, um, but the calling of the classroom, how did that happen? And, you know, a lot of people will be thinking, you know, what were you thinking when that actually happened? Um, well, it came almost by by default, because actually when I retired, um, my first kind of focus was to get a job. Um, I was actually still in plaster at the time because, um, <laughs> because, like, because of the nature of me, I broke my wrist and I had to have a couple of operations, two stroke, three operations, which I had. Um, to kind of recon reconstructive surgery on my wrist because I broke it taking a catch. So my first port call was just get a job. So I, I put my, my my suit on, the one suit that I had, um, and went out and, and looked for a job. And initially I looked for anything, whether it's admin or what have you. And I initially applied for, I was in Northampton at the time, and I applied for actually a drugs actions team coordinator because I wanted to do something that was community related. I applied to be a trainee social worker, didn't get on that, and trainee youth worker for the local authority, didn't go on that. And then I came across this job. Um, it was actually some kind of sports management, not sports management, but local authority sports lead. And I applied for that through Luton Local Authority and, and was offered the school sports coordinator role, which those who obviously work in education know that it's, you know, it's, it's for PE teachers. So I worked as an unqualified teacher doing that. Um, Luton invested time and money in me, uh, coaching badges. So I did everything, football, cricket, uh, netball, uh, basketball, flag football, which is the tag, the, tag, um, the, the tag rugby version of American football. I did, you know, various qualifications. It's a great, it's great flag football. Um, I did athletics, um, fitness trainer. I mean, lots of things. And the team were brilliant. They treated me as one of their own. So I worked in Luton for a, a couple of years, and I think that was a quite a good step into the teaching career because the job had flexibility. There was times when I was in school, there was times I was learning about actually kind of things on an operational level at local authority level. So it gave me a real management experience as well because as a as a school sports coordinator, I had a lead I had a lead role as well. So across the forty schools within the Luton school sports partnership that I was part of, I had to lead on. CPD in sport. So I was the CPD lead for, for teachers, for the local community, for sport. And that that really, so it really gave me a real insight into things at various levels. So I'd, I would go into secondary schools and work with the head of PE um, around their CPD for, for PE and sport. I would go into uh, primary schools and help, you know, put teachers on training programs that would help um, them you know, develop their their PE knowledge and their PE knowledge to deliver the curriculum. And I would also go into the local community and help local clubs get people onto coaching badges. So in return for that, through the funding that we had, they could then come into schools and deliver out of school hours, learning after school clubs, before school, lunchtime clubs to the schools as, as in return for us funding what, what training they were doing. So that was kind of my role in terms of leadership. And for young people, the Junior Sports Leaders Award and the Community Sports Leaders Award, and for people in the community for the CSLA as well. 
So that was a really good introduction to education at, and it wasn't, but it wasn't in the classroom all the time. But after doing that for two years, one, my degree was maths based, and I changed that direction very early. But also, having spent a lot of my time in cricket whites and in track suits and traveling the country and the world playing sport, I felt as a black male, I didn't want to be a cliche. So I, I, I recall some young people when a teacher was talking about the importance of working hard and and on academia. And I remember hearing uh, uh, some young students say, well, we don't need to, we can be a sportsman like Mr. Rollins and then and then, then teach PE. And I thought that's, I felt my position sent the wrong message. So what I decided was, you know, I, I, I went into maths, which is my, which is the basis of my, the base of my degree, maths and education. So I, uh, I started a job at Northampton Academy as an unqualified maths teacher before doing, eventually doing my qualifications, but not through Northampton. And then I went back to London for one, two, about six years, worked in a primary to learn about the primary maths curriculum um, and worked secondary. And yeah, I qualified as a, my, my tra I trained as a maths teacher. And it was, to me, it, the key thing for me is one, being an ex-sportsman, teaching maths, I thought it was important for me to understand how you can be academic and sporting. But also, I thought I just had to get back to, I had to get back. And my, my first secondary teacher role, or my first one outside of Northampton Academy, when I got back to London, was in the same local authority I grew up in. And I, oh, there's a lot of young, talented sports people in East London. But I had to show them, okay, that's really good, but that could come to an end and you have to do something else. So I felt I, I managed to have a connection, particularly with um, the boys groups, not all of them. Some of them wanted to challenge me, as happens in schools. But in terms of understanding, look, Sir's an ex-sportsman and he's a maths teacher. It really wanted, I just want that, that message to come across that, you know, sports people, are, you, you, sport isn't a... a a choice that you make just because you have to make it because often that's a bit of a stereotype oh you know um johnny um went to school and he was falling out he was close to exclusion and then his pe teacher took him to a football club and he became a professional footballer who makes millions of years but makes millions of pound a year and i thought that's not necessarily how it goes some of us actually you know a lot of us are do have the academic skill and might not even realize at the time the academic skill to to have an education and have a sports career. So I thought that message was really, really important. And it's one I still I still talk about today. So going into education felt natural for me because I just wanted to give back. And the best way to give back was to be in a school where there's not enough people who look like me to help people who look like me. No, absolutely, Adrian. You're absolutely correct. And these conversations about the number of BAME teachers or BAME head teachers something that's becoming very prominent and it's a conversation we should be having and I was at school, left school in 2011 I don't remember many Asian or black or Asian teachers actually I don't remember any at all um, and for me that disconnect was really really difficult to, to bridge it's hard, it is hard when you don't see people like yourselves in position of authority it's really difficult um, it's hard to have that ambition isn't it in those roles as well absolutely so you know, massive respect for you stepping into the classroom so Adrian okay your sporting accolades your skills you developed on the cricketing field 
how do you think they helped you with leadership in school and uh, managing or should I say trying to behavior manage in, in your classroom as well how do you think those skills supported you well I think as a professional sports person firstly your ability to the discipline is um, you know your self-discipline and and getting that message across and having that that sense of discipline that you you want your students to say look this is this is not a game no pun intended you know this is your life and you know every decision you make you have to be you know as a sports you have to be strategic you have to be well planned you have to be your preparation is everything um and you know from a sports psychology perspective you've got your process goals and your outcome goals and you take as a sports person you take care of your processes and the outcomes take care of themselves so that's the key message i have to young people in education every day is an opportunity to learn every day is an opportunity to develop and that, and if you do that on a daily basis when you sit that exam in year 11 or not under as the case may be for this year and for last year the outcomes take care of themselves so that has to be the message because you can't be successful unless you have that constant push but you will have ups and downs so you know i've not done it recently but i would say a few years ago i used to have scrapbooks you know um, in my classroom when i was a classroom teacher not to show off to show people look this is what happened but there were downs and i've got a couple of headlines in there which said which were not so good you know, so the ups and downs in sport are very, you know, as what you learn in education, you will have some good days, you will have some challenging days. The other thing is in terms of handling pressure, because the nature of being a sports person in a very public forum or a very public arena, you know, you know, teaching is quite public. As you know, you know, people on Twitter are, you know, lambasting teachers and, you know, but um, at the same time, the one thing I, I would communicate staff, I know people always have this conversation around Ofsted and have this kind of fear of Ofsted, but the reality is Ofsted coming in two days to get a, a snapshot of where your school is at and then at the same time to offer that advice and guidance to, to improve, whether your school's good and you want to go to outstanding, whether you're at RI, you need to go to good, or whether you're inadequate, you need to go to RI and so on. Because ultimately, you know, they they are they're a force for school improvement and I, I don't have a problem with that. So... The one thing I would say in terms of dealing with, for example, dealing with Ofsted, you know, it's a two-day process where you're under scrutiny, but I had 10 days, 10 days, 10 years, year in, year out, being under scrutiny. So, you know, taking my experience as a sports person and saying, look, this is just what happens. You you know, these are tests. These are, these are this is just a point of reference, but you still, you know, that doesn't define you. The inspection doesn't define you. But it is, it's a, it's a checkpoint to see where you're at in terms of the children. And ultimately, as a sports person and in a team game, my focus is, a, is to do whatever I need to do in terms of co to contribute to the team. No, absolutely. I think the conversation about Ofsted is something that needs to be had anyway at some stage or another. And there's definitely transferable skills, aren't there? Teacher Hug Radio, Anti-Small Talk. We've got Adrian Rollins here. We've got one more ad break and some messages from our sponsors. Welcome back to Anti Small Talk. We've got Adrian Rollins here with Shweb Khan having a conversation. So, Adrian, okay, let's talk about the team approach. The team approach in school improvement. 
and in education each member staff in that school has to do what is necessary to contribute to those the children and what the outcomes are and i mean everyone i mean the cleaners everyone the catering staff the tas everybody you know it is not just about the teachers it is about everybody we all have to be in it together because because um you know one chink in the armor could could actually you know could have a ripple effect so i'm very big on on the team aspect which is one thing that I bring into education and, and my passion is as someone who I consider myself a team player as a sports person I'm very passionate about people pulling for the team and you know and either supporting and I'm very much about supporting staff who are not necessarily meeting the needs of the team or challenging staff if they actually determine that they don't want to meet the needs of the team so um, yeah so that's the kind of the kind of transferable skills I think I bring from sport to education. You also bring a very big personality, a great sense of humour and just a lot of inspiration. Your school are so lucky to have you, Adrian. They're very, very lucky to have you as a as a leader, as a teacher, as a role model. They're very, very lucky to have you. So, Adrian, OK, I've got a couple more questions for you. What other key traits do you think you possess as a leader, as a teacher, as an educator? Yeah, you need a sense of humour because... because um... Yeah, wellness is everything in life, and a sense of humour helps contribute to your wellness because laughter in itself is is therapeutic. So you have to be able to laugh. You need to be able to kick back. You need to have a sense of humour. You need to have a sense of humour as a teacher because you know we're dealing with you know adolescent teenagers, and if you haven't got if you're secondary and if you're primary, you know that too. You know, just <laughs> young people growing up, and you're helping them grow up. It's a big job, um, and it's one that parents and the community have to make a contribution to and i think that's the other thing i'm very clear about the community and the and parents people at home have to contribute to we're not there to raise your kids we're there to educate them but we will definitely make sure within our within our remit that we are helping to contribute to their well-being their sense of self and their sense of duty no you're absolutely right adrian i totally agree with you and i think this this notion of teacher bashing the nation's favorite sport after you know football and cricket and rugby Teacher bashing is a nation's favourite sport. So if we were to take a flight to Kashmir or you know, a country where the profession is valorised and respected, things would look very different, wouldn't they? So Adrian, okay, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about teacher bashing? Because I know it gets on my nerves. I'd love to have someone else's perspective on it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I think it's been, from a, from a teacher perspective, it's been very challenging. Um, and... I think the the flip side to this is that in the main, outside of you know, that we've got some parents saying get the kids back to school and all that kind of stuff. And trust me, everyone teaching would find it much easier if the children are in school. We just want to make sure we're safe and that we have the the necessary things in place to make sure they're safe. But that being said, you know, we love what we do. You know, we love what we do. We love teaching children. We love engaging them. We love. Um, the fact that we're going to help make a difference in someone's life. And it's such a huge responsibility that the last thing we need is to get bashed in the public forum because all that does is get people leaving and we, we are a shortage profession. So I don't quite understand how um, doing that is going to help. And what I would say is some of these people who are bashing teachers, just try it because uh, <laughs> um, I've seen many people come into the career and leave. Um, and one of the things they'll say is, for example, it's, it's, it's tiring. It's all, I didn't realise it was this hard. I didn't realise it was this tiring. It's hard work. 
you know it's it's a being a teacher is not not a, it's not um you know it's it's not a vocation it's a preoccupation <laughs> you know your my my preoccupation is my vocation it's it's something you live and breathe teaching you now you live and breathe this industry you don't you don't you know it's not just something you do you, you don't park it when you you know when three o'clock hits or some of you always go home now come in tomorrow you know you live you you live it you live it because you either either because you're working marking or because in your mind you're thinking how can i make things better for these young people how can i make it better you're thinking you have a conversations you, you're researching you're looking up you're talking to other colleagues you know you're doing cpd in school all these things because you're passionate and i would say obviously you know like in any industry it doesn't matter what it is, there will be people who are not necessarily as passionate, who perhaps may not or should not be teaching. But I can same to it anywhere, but we're talking about the overwhelming majority here. And, you know, the overwhelming majority give a real big damn about these young people and their futures and will invest time and energy and sacrifice for that to happen. No, Adrian, I echo that. I echo that in many, many, many ways. I echo that in many, many ways. So Adrian, okay, very conscious of time, okay, I want to sneak in some quick questions for you, okay. Two things you love about teaching, two things you don't necessarily love too much. Um, two things I love about teaching, firstly the students. So in terms of the fact that you've got young people come in and, you know, that interaction and those relationships you build with those students in order to help motivate them and keep them focused and help them achieve what they do because... The one thing sometimes some teachers forget and some people forget, if there's no students, there's no school. So the students, you know, they have the interaction and that, and that relationship building that you do day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month in, year in, year out. That's, that's a fantastic thing. Second thing I love about teaching is the, the fact that you, learn, you, that you learn something every day. It's not just, you're not just teaching, you're learning. And some jobs, you don't necessarily do that. You you will go into work and you know what you're going to be facing you know what you're going to be doing you know what you're going to be ex trying to execute and then five o'clock comes and you leave so you don't have that in teaching every day is a learning opportunity and you learn something about yourself every day um two things i'd like to change in teaching um there's not there's not particularly a lot i'd like to change i think there's a lot of changes that are taking place because of the kind of staff well-being kind of charters that a lot of schools are leading on and people are aware of, you know, things like, you know, data input is, is less and less and the kind of really looking at the curriculum and looking at things like marking and, and how marking can be more effective and more time worthy. I think in that respect, I think the changes are, are, are in place in, in many, many schools. Um, but I think one thing, uh, and one thing I would particularly like change is just the, kind of investment in uh i don't know whether you want to call it global majority or bme staff in, in particular at leadership level and development and particularly at governorship as well because there's very few in governorship and just that understanding that of our experience perhaps some kind of think tank or talk tank about our experiences in education because there's conscious bias and there's unconscious bias and i have experienced it and um I think there just needs to be opportunities for people to speak out about those things without feeling um, guilty about it and for people to actually stop and listen. I know there's been the kind of the Black Lives Matter and that, you know, following George George Floyd, but just putting that putting that aside because before George Floyd, there was Breonna Taylor, before Breonna Taylor, you know, we can go back, you can go back years and years and years. 
Sandra Bland and go go back 10, 20, 20 years ago, Rodney King and go back and keep going back. But, um, and over here, you know, Smiley Culture, for example, you know, there's there's so many experiences here. I think it's just the opportunity to, to have a voice and be listened to and for people to understand what it feels like to be subjected to racism without being made to feel bad to have a, to have a voice. I think that's that will that will take time to to be to get there. Um, I know, for example, in cricket, there's there there's attempted changes, but I, even with that, I would say, like for example, with uh, young Shafiq, I would, Rafiq, not Shafiq, Rafiq. You know, these things happen. These things are there, and they're not going to go away. But it's a case of people there being a platform for people to speak, and also a platform where people are going to be listened to. No, absolutely. And I think everyone just wants to be heard, don't they? They want to have their story heard. They want to know, you know, they want to have a safe place to have their stories unpacked. And that's what this podcast is all about. That's what Teacher Hug Radio is all about. Allowing people to have their stories heard in a safe forum. So, Adrian, okay, because we are approaching that time, that very important time here on Anti Small Talk. Adrian, what is on your playlist? I've, I grew up on various things like my family. Um, being from the Caribbean, soca kind of soca calypso music, so I always have that in my playlist. I tend to have something called soca anthems, which is like the classic kind of soca tracks. And I'm not just saying feeling hot, 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 because everyone knows that track. Or who let the dogs out? There are there are thousands of other tracks. Um, I grew up on that. I grew up on reggae. I grew up in soul. So in like eighties soul R and B, like the SOS band and um, kind of Midnight Star, Atlantic Star. Um, and so on, and, and like then that kind of funk era, Parliament, and then in my teenage years, I I came I came across say rap music and and R and B. So I, I think the first album I bought was Run DMC, Raising Raising Hell. I think 1985. Um, you know, so um, I used to know every word of that album. <laughs> Not like it's tricky, and although I don't know it now, funny enough, but. I grew up on that and, um, you know, so I appreciate, but I grew up on rap on the back that I used to love poetry and then all of a sudden there was poetry to music and I found that quite, what, these, you can actually speak on a, speak poetry in, in rhythm. So that was my fascination um, growing up with that. So I have a, I have a wide range of uh, things. My playlist is, is huge and I, I'm very grateful for Amazon Unlimited. That's all I can say. No, I absolutely love that. It's such a fantastic thing to have a wide-ranging playlist, eclectic taste. I listen to everything, you know. I'm sure you're not a Spice Girls fan, but I am, unashamedly. Uh, no, Adrian, it's been absolutely incredible having you on Anti-Small Talk with Teacher Hug Radio. Um, you're a fantastic educator and a brilliant, brilliant guy. Thank you so much. Guys, follow this man. Uh, I will leave his Twitter handle in our promotion. Uh, it's a fantastic educator with so much wisdom and experience. Thank you, Adrian. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. This has been Anti-Small Talk in collaboration with Teacher Hug Radio. If you wish to get involved and have your story heard, please tweet us at, at Anti-Small Talks. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Goodbye.